This morning's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 12. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's bow together and and pray before we begin. Father in heaven, I ask for your help now to be faithful to your word, and I pray that our, our minds would be illumined and clear for understanding and that our hearts would be softened and receptive for truth and that we would respond to what you reveal in your word by your spirit in a way that is saving and an honor to Christ and a joy to our own souls. You know every heart in this room right now, Lord, and what each one needs on this snowy Easter morning. There's so many different needs. Marriage needs, relational needs, health needs, and ultimately needs to be forgiven by you and to be loved and accepted and redeemed and justified and given life eternal 
So, Lord, right across the board, do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think. But, oh, Lord, not less than I can ask or think. And I ask for salvation. And I ask for strengthening. And I ask for hope. And I ask for joy. And I ask for reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the advantages of having an Old Testament and a New Testament in your Bible, if you're a Christian, which we do, is that they they help us, these two clusters of books, help us be confident in each. It works like this. If you're Jewish or have a Jewish background or are rooted in the Old Testament, you know your way around there, then when you see dozens and dozens of passages from the Old Testament, those 39 books, being fulfilled in the life and teaching and ministry and church of Jesus Christ, it increases your confidence in the New Testament. And it works the other way. If you have never read a syllable of the Old Testament, maybe not of the New either, And somebody begins to tell you the story of Jesus Christ, his coming, his living, his teaching, his dying, his rising. And perhaps suddenly or perhaps over time, lights go on and you see his credibility, you see his relevance, you see his beauty, you see how compelling he is and he wins your trust and you embrace Him as Lord and Savior of your life and what He taught, then you discover, perhaps slowly, perhaps quickly, that He embraced this old book called the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, I came to fulfill, He said. And so you're drawn the other way to embrace the whole book. The reason that's relevant this morning is because I want to talk about the resurrection. I want to talk about its meaning to my life and your life. I want to talk about the death that had to precede it and what the death meant and how the resurrection related to the death of Jesus. And I'm taking my text from a book written 700 years before that event happened. The reason for that is, I want there to be both content and confirmation in this message. I want the content of the resurrection to land on us with its hope and its joy, its relevance for our lives today, 20th century, 21st century. And I want in the very text I choose there to be confirmation of that truth And I thought, well, if we could actually see it in a text 700 years before it happened, that would up the likelihood that it is true. That's the reason for going the way I'm going. And there's another twist on it. This is the first Easter since 9-11. Ever since 9-11, more than you would imagine, the question of Islam is in everybody's mind Who's thinking today? Middle East is a huge explosive issue. About 
21 years ago, I had my first serious conversation with a thoughtful Muslim about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And learned, and I've learned it repeatedly since then, that in general, Islam does not believe that Jesus did die on the cross or rise again. That another person was substituted for Jesus. Jesus slipped away and was taken into heaven. Let me read from the Quran. Surah 4, 156. And for the Jews saying, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God, they did not slay him, neither crucified him. Only a likeness of that was shown to them. Those regarding him, they have no knowledge of him except the following of surmise. And they slew him not of a certainty. No, indeed, God raised him up to him. God is almighty, all wise. End quote. Islam does not believe that Jesus was crucified. And that he rose again from the dead. Now ponder for just a moment what that means. The very center of the Christian faith is the death of Jesus for sinners. And the rising of that Jesus to vindicate the worth and sufficiency and value of that death for sinners in their place. From top to bottom... The New Testament is permeated with this fundamental, essential reality. Christ died for sinners, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And Islam says all of the New Testament has a mistake at the center of it and from top to bottom is in error and is built on a falsehood. Now, it's one thing for Islam to say that Christians following the event either misunderstood it or distorted it. And so wrote all of their documents on the basis of that error and created a religion that is essentially false. That's one thing. But I wonder... If it is brought to mind often enough that in order for that claim to stand, they must also undo the Jewish scriptures as well. The Old Testament. Because the claim is put forward often that they prize the Old Testament. It's their book, too. You can't have it both ways. Isaiah 53 is where we're going this morning to see two things. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the servant of God, died and did not escape the cross. And he died for a reason appointed by God. And secondly, he rose from the dead. And he he rose for a reason appointed by God. And you don't have to even bring in the New Testament to see it. So let's go there. If you don't have your Bibles open again, 
let's open them to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It's about in the middle. It's a very big book. You can flip through and find it. Isaiah chapter 53. While I look at this, I want you to think not merely, oh, this is kind of an interesting historical, academic reflection on what an ancient religious person might have thought. Don't think that way. At least for a moment, give yourself up to considering, just considering earnestly, seriously with your mind and your heart. Is there anything relevant here for me? I know I'm a sinner. I don't even live up to my own standards, let alone to the Almighty's standards. Therefore, my conscience is defiled. How I could stand before a holy God, I have no idea. For Him to be accepting me as I am would seem to be a gross injustice against His holiness because I have so offended Him so often in the way I've thought and felt and lived. Is there any redemption for me? Is there any way my sin could be covered? That's the question you ought to be asking as we read this because that's what the whole Old Testament is about, pointing towards a Redeemer. And the Redeemer isn't named Jesus. He's not named the Christ. Named servant of God, 52.13, servant of the Lord, 53.12, anointed one, Messiah. Did he die? Did he have to die? Did the Messiah have to die? Verse 8 and 9 and 12 all say yes. After saying in verse 7 that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, verse 8 says the slaughter was successful. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? There it is. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So there's his death. Look at verse 9, where it's confirmed with a burial. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Oh, I wish we had time to unpack the details, the the magnificent, glorious details of fulfillment in the way Jesus died and was buried to fulfill this text. But let's look at verse 12, the third statement about his death. Verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out, here it is, he poured out his soul to death. Three times, verse 8, Verse 9, verse 12, the suffering servant will die. He will die. Now the question is, why? Is it just a fluke? Is it just a historical accident? He sort of let things get out of hand in Jerusalem and it was a political upheaval and there was a big mistake and there was this wimp named Pilate and it just shouldn't have happened and it had no big ultimate divine meaning. It just got out of hand. It was a political brawl and oh, terrible tragedy. You can't have it that way if you look at verse 10. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. In other words, this death is by design of God. God crushed his son. Now, why? Why? And I was just overwhelmed in preparing at this point because ten times it tells us why in this text. I mean, if you've come into this room and you've wondered, what does Christianity really teach? What's the essence of Christianity? What's the heart of it? I mean, it's a big book and it's a big movement. And uh, what is the one essential, crucial, bottom line thing that Christians all believe? It's right here. Christ died for a reason. And instead of me telling you what it is or even commenting on the text, I'm going to read ten statements for why he died. All right? And I'll show you where every one of them are. You can put your finger on them. You can check. You can read it later. Ponder it. Number one, verse four. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Number two, verse four, and our sorrows he carried. Number three, verse five, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Number four, verse five, he was crushed for our iniquities. Number five, verse five, the chastening. The punishment of our peace or our well-being fell on him. He bore the chastening. Number six, verse five. And by his scourging, we are healed. Number seven, verse six. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Number eight, verse eight. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Number nine, verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Number 10, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. The essence, the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ died for sin. To deny that Christ died for sin is to cancel Christianity. You can't say, we like Christianity and deny that Christ died. It is Christianity. Christ died for our sins. When Paul had to sum up the gospel of Christianity in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I delivered to you what I also received of first importance, how that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that on the third day he rose from the dead and that he appeared to many, 500 at one time, who knew he had died. And there are many of them still alive, Paul said. This is called in historiography, historical control. 
They're alive. Ask them. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And they've seen him alive. This is Christianity. Question. Does the Old Testament teach that he rose? Does this text, Isaiah 53, teach that he rose? Three times it does. And each time it does in a way that shows it is the result of the death. In other words, it's just like Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, where he says Christ was obedient even unto death, death on the cross. Therefore, God has given him a name which is above every name. It's the therefore that's three times in this text. Let's look at them. Number one is in verse 10, second half of the verse. If he would render himself as a guilt offering or his soul. Now, that's a real if. That's not an imaginary if. He did render himself. That's what it said over and over again. If he would render himself, if this suffering servant, this Messiah, this Christ would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, three things result. One, he will see his offspring. Two, he will prolong his days. Three, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If the suffering servant is willing to die, a tenfold description of four sinners in our place, bearing our iniquity instead of our having to bear our iniquity. If he would do that, three things would result. Number one, he will see his offspring. That is, he'll be alive again and he will look out upon all those who have been brought into being as redeemed believers who have eternal life. And he will delight in the assembly of his people that he bought. Number two, he will prolong his days. How long will he prolong his days? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, If Christ is risen, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And if you just think it through from the meaning of this triumph out the prolongation of his days after his resurrection is forever. He's an eternal Christ. And number three, the result is the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So once he died, he accomplished God's purposes in dying. And now he's alive. And you remember that scene in Revelation, last book of the Bible. John is crying. Oh, God, who can open the seals? Meaning, who can unroll the scroll of history so that all of your purposes come to a consummated end and you triumph in every way you have purposed and designed? And there was nobody, evidently, who could unroll the scroll. And the angel came to John and says, Weep not, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's the lamb. And the lion, and he can open the scroll, and every pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, the risen Christ, seated at the right hand of God today, will be the instrument by which every purpose of God is achieved in world history. The resurrection is here. Here it is again, verse 11. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, there's that point again, result, result, coming from his faithful obedience in death. As a result, or out of, or from the anguish of his soul, he will see, and I, I'm going to leave out the word it because you see it's in italics because it's not there in the Hebrew. It's just, he will see, be satisfied. The question is, what? Satisfied with what? And verse 10 told us. He will see his offspring. And now it says, he will see, be satisfied. And here's another thing that will result. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. You know what justify means? You've been here for four years, you know. But if you're a guest this morning, let me just say it in a word. Justify means declare just in a courtroom. You may be guilty, you may be innocent, and if the judge says not guilty, just, you may go. You're just, he justifies you. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Only the amazing thing is, he's going to do it to sinners. He's going to look at sinners and say, be just. I've paid for you. That's the point of the death. Without the death, you can't do that. You can't be just and the justifier. You either got to choose between justice and justification for sinners. If you don't have a death, bearing the sins of the unjust. And so he had to have this death. And because he gave himself up as an offering, a guilt offering, now the result will be he can make many righteous who have been sinners. And the third result He will bear the sins of many. Yes, he bore them in his death. But oh, we'll see the word intercession in the next verse. He'll go on bearing those sins forever and ever. He'll always have wounded hands. He'll always have a wounded side. He'll always have a wounded foot. And every time that we contemplate our past sins, we will see in the wounds of Jesus the complete satisfaction. He will, as it were, go on bearing them forever for us. We'll never have to be crushed by our own sins ever, ever again. This is sweet. So yes, that all came as a result of His offering himself up. It's a resurrection gift and spoil. Last verse to see it. Verse 12. Here's the resurrection again. Therefore, God speaking now, I will allot him, this suffering servant, this Christ, this anointed one, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty, the spoil, with the strong. Because, there's that cause again. There it is, the third time. It all flows from his death because he poured out himself to death. But now notice, if those things at the front of the verse, 12, are the result of what is at the end of the verse, namely, because he poured himself out to death, therefore God will allot him a portion with the great, and therefore God will give him spoil with the strong. We're talking resurrection here. You don't even have to go to some ostensible distortion of Christians after the event. 700 years before the Christ came, 
He had to die by God's appointment. He died for sinners by God's appointment and by God's love for us and you sitting in your pew right now. And he rose again. Why? So that he might share the spoil with the assembly of his offspring who satisfy his soul. Who's the resurrection for? Trick question. Who's the resurrection for? And the answer is for Jesus and for you and me. For Jesus, because it says he, verse 11, he will see and be satisfied. Who of us would deny the honor of his resurrection and the reward of his suffering? Yes, The resurrection is for Jesus. God blessed him when he died. He said, my son, my dead son, you've succeeded. You've paid the debt. The price has been paid. All my people who will believe in you have their sins covered. I reward you. Arise from the dead. And he was raised by the glory of the Father. But now I ask, satisfied in what? And this brings us into the picture. This brings us into the picture. Because it says in verse 10, he will see his offspring. And verse 11 says he will see and be satisfied. So get this. This is awesome. The joy that was set before Jesus included this joy. An assembly of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what this choir back here is called. Some of them anyway. Don't you ache at the pain of racial, ethnic, national conflict in the world today? It's going to blow up one of these days. And Christ died and rose again to gather to himself a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and out of every religion into an allegiance to the true God through the crucified Christ. Call it what you will if Christ is at the center. His blood shed is covering sins. His resurrection is vindicating the death. And he is now the Lord of lords and king of kings over every prophet and every pretender to the throne. You're included. Embrace that. Believe that. That's what it's all about. So you're included. The resurrection is for you. The resurrection is for God. In just a moment, we're going to sing two songs. One is called, Crown Him with Many Crowns. And it is appropriate that we put all of our focus on the Lamb of God upon the throne, as that first line says. And just acclaim Him in our closing act of worship. And then we'll go sing another kind of song. (laughs) I was so glad I heard it in the first service. (laughs) So I can tell you what's coming. Another kind of song. We're going to sing victory in Jesus. And the point of this song is you're included. And we're going to celebrate our victory 
in Jesus. Lift Him up, make much of Him, magnify Him, and then be so glad you can hardly hold still that you're included whatever your past sinful condition has been. Father, as we turn now to you, in closing song, receive our praises. And oh God, I pray for those in in the room right now who did not come into the room trusting Christ and submitting to Christ and embracing Christ as Lord of their lives, that now you would bring them over the line to see that He's true and to see that He's beautiful, to see that His death is real and necessary and that His resurrection is trustworthy. Grant, I pray, that that would be seen so that these celebrative moments here at the end could be authentic and real from all of our mouths. In Jesus' name, amen.